Welcome to The Shed Wireless, a podcast for shedders. Produced by the Australian Men's Shed Association across Australia and around the world. Yeah, there's something for you at the Men's Shed. Hi there, it's great to have you here with me on The Shed Wireless. If you're new here, we like to chew the fat about sheds and tools. We also throw in a few fishing tales and life stories. You're guaranteed a laugh or two. And you might even get some ideas and inspiration from other shedders. We also get involved with a little dose of men's health to keep us all ticking along nicely. That's in Ask the Doc a little bit later. Here's what you can look forward to in this episode. On the tools, we're looking at dust extractors. Our shed in the spotlight is a Victorian shed. Our celebrity special guest reckons he's a very lucky man. Lawsy has been on the airwaves in Australia for the best part of 60 years, and I was chuffed when he accepted my invitation to come on the shed wireless. Rip Woodchip reveals he has a softer side beneath the gruff... <laughs> oh, even I can't believe this smart aleck exterior. I don't think so, but anyway, we'll find out. And we're asking some more questions about the opioids you've probably been taking for pain relief at some stage in Ask the Doc. We're doing a little series on pain management, a great series indeed. You're listening to The Shared Wireless with John Paul Young. It's a podcast for shedders, so shed all your cares and woes and listen in. Before we get on the tools, I've got a few things to share with you from the Shed Wireless inbox. You can email me, don't forget, you can email me at the Shed Wireless team at theshedwireless at menshed.net. This one reads, Hello JPY, I used to be the go-set photographer in Brisbane back in the day. Now I'm at the Ashgrove in the Gap Men's Shed. Uh, cheers and beers from Jerry Downing. Well, I'm, su- I'm sure you remember Go Set. It was a very big uh, music magazine back in the 60s and early 70s. So, um, yes, Jerry, you would have been involved in photographing very famous Australian artists like Lobby Lloyd and the executives at very famous uh, Brisbane band from back in the day. Now, here's another one I'd like to share with you. Hello, Shed Wireless team. I just wanted to let you know how much I enjoy the podcast and share a little of the difference it has made in my life. I listened with interest to the section quite a few episodes ago on ED, that's code for erectile dysfunction. At that time, it was just of general interest, if you know what I mean. Fast forward a few months and I find myself in a new relationship with an absolutely wonderful woman. To be honest, I'm absolutely head over heels for this woman. Who knew that this was even possible at my age? As the relationship developed into a physical one, I was extremely distressed and embarrassed to suddenly be faced with my own ED problem. Armed with the information and confidence I had gained from the Shed Wireless, I managed to talk with my partner about the issue, then headed off to the GP. While talking about the problem and seeking help from the doctor was not the highlight of my year, I was able to do it, probably only because of the frank and honest information provided by the Shed Wireless. In case you're wondering, the fix was a simple pill and I was again standing tall in no time. I bet I know what pill that was. That's regards from our anonymous shedder and he's uh, 58 years old. But I, I mean, that's great. It's, we, we love to hear things like that and, uh, and I'm sure it's, uh, it's comforting for a lot, of, a lot of folks that might find themselves in the same position. 
On the Tools, on the Shed Wireless, with John Paul Young. Here we go with On the Tools. This is where we like to cover hot topics in the shed world. So far this year we've talked about CNC routers, spiral cutters, and now we're going down a controversial path, dust extraction. Marty Lees from the Australian Men's Shed Association is out investigating. Come in, Marty. Thanks, JPY. Today I am down at the Helensburg Shed. Um, to talk about all things dust extraction. Now, this is a hot topic in sheds, definitely. Uh, it's, not just, uh, it's not just about keeping the shed clean. It's about work health and safety. We know dust is a massive problem in sheds. We found that out last week when we spoke about the, uh, the helix cutters. Uh, the last episode, we spoke about the helix cutters and how they limit the dust and the noise. But this is another thing that really comes down to work health and safety. Now, I've got to say, this is one of the cleanest sheds I've ever been to. You could probably just about do the white glove test here because uh, hardly an ounce of dust. And I guess we have to put it down to these new dust extraction systems that I've been hearing about, and this is the first time I've actually seen them. But uh, these are like, auto, I think they're auto blast gates. And I'm here today with Alan, who's one of the designers of these blast gates, um, to tell us a little bit more about how they work because it is definitely a unique system. So, Alan... Okay, where do we start? These, these things are amazing. How did they come to be and why did you investigate this sort of system and, you know, get, get involved with this sort of thing? They were developed for a very personal reason. At the end of every day of woodworking, my wrists, my neck, my waist were red raw with meat because I developed an allergy to Australian red cedar and that was my specialty. So I knew I had to give up woodwork or get rid of the dust, one or the other. So I started developing my own system and then I met up with Chris and Tony who were doing the same thing in their own sheds and we came up with the product which initially was only for us. That was really the background of it. Then word spread and then we formed the company and what we're now doing is we're working not so much from outside the men's shed organisation but virtually from inside the men's shed organisation helping sheds to install completely automated dust collecting systems. That's its history. That's, that's pretty cool. I remember it was years ago I was, I was going down to a shed, I think it was in Coromel on the, on the New South Wales uh, south coast, and they had a system there. It was not as elaborate as this, but basically you turned on a machine, and when you turned on the machine, the dust extraction started up. This is very, very similar, pretty much the same thing, but this goes above and beyond. So how does, how does this work? Well, the way it works is that we actually set it up such that when you turn a machine on, the controller senses the machine is working and opens the gate. That's stage one. That just means you've got dust pickup from that machine, getting dust at the source. Then what we did was we thought, all right, the next step now is you've opened the gate. If the dust collector's not on, so what? So we now connected in stage two such that the act of opening, turning on a machine opens a gate and starts the dust collector. So essentially, instead of having turning on the, the dust extraction system and having suction points, like several suction points all over the shed, which obviously would limit the, the suction capacity. Look at me, sound like a suction expert, don't I? And uh, yes, but from this point of view, it's only one or two, uh, you know, vacuum points that will be working at, a, at one time, whichever unit is being worked, which basically, you know... 
Well, as you guys would know better than I, in any men's shed, you can have one gate open or 20 gates open. So you still need the capacity and the dust extractor itself to do the work. But this means there'd be no gates open that aren't being used. So anything that's open is being used. As soon as the machine is turned off, it is closed and tucked away. So, okay, in a nutshell, how does this work? How does, what are these, I, I see, we're trying to give the, the listeners a bit of a, an idea of what this looks like, but I've, I can see the, the suction points around each bench. They go up to, there's a main suction line that goes through the, shed, through the middle of the shed, but just before each point has this sort of a, a gate on it with a, uh, it's like, a, what's, what's that little control arm there? It's called a linear actuator. All it is is it's a... That's what I was going to say, linear, linear actuator. We won't call it a powered ram. It is a linear, linear actuator, yes. And uh, the, so the way we designed it was to suit, first of all, us. So it's designed around 250 mil, 150 mil, and to much lesser extent, 100 mil stormwater PVC pipe. So what you're looking at is the PVC pipe. The gates are colour-coordinated to the pipe as well as anything else, and all the fittings are then mutual. The idea being to get the biggest diameter pipe you can get to the source of dust, pick it up right at the beginning, and then as you can see in this shed, none of it gets up into the ceiling, on the top of the pipes or anywhere else, because they are so successful at getting it at the source. Mate, this is cleaner than my house, this place. This is incredible. So... So, okay, so we've got the, the gates open. So basically you switch a machine, or like I could be using a drill or a sander or something at the bench at the shed. As soon as it's plugged into a certain power point, which is connected to the blast gate, um, this, is from, this, is my rec this is how I'm reckoning it's working. As soon as I turn on that piece of equipment, it opens the blast gate, the suction starts, and it basically takes up every little ounce of dust as, as you're working. Yeah, absolutely spot on. The way we do it is we don't wire a machine up to the system. You actually wire the power point. So no matter what machine you plug into that power point, it will open the gate that goes to its dust collector. Now, in my own shed, I took this to an extreme where in the machine shop, I've got one pipe on a boom and a pendant power point. No matter which machine I wheel out and plug into it, I've then got a completely automated system on any machine. So in the, my case, for instance, I've got one system on five totally different machines because I can only use one at a time. In a men's shed, of course, you can be using all of them at a time, and so you do tend to have all the power points wired back to the system. Wow. Wow. This is just – it's so basic, so elementary. But to look at this thing, it, it, it is it, – it looks a little bit complicated, I guess, but there's a lot of – I mean, a lot of arms and legs coming up, but it's all just PVC piping. Like any, any boat could put it together, and it's just about all the – I guess there's a little bit involved with the electrical and the, the circuitry up there, but most, it looks to me everything's basically just plugged in, so you don't have to be a genius to put it together. It is all plug and play. You don't need a, an electrician to install it. Most sheds do have one, but you don't need one because all the connections you're going to make are low-voltage connections. So it's literally plug and play. It's incremental. You can start off with one gate, Unlike some other systems where you have to buy a big central controller, you can have one gate and one control on one power point, and many sheds have started out like that with one, and then within a period of 12 months or so, they're up around 12, 15. But you can buy them one at a time and install them. Well, that's a very good point. That's, that's the next point to come to. What sort of cost and expense are we looking at? Oh, I guess, too, what sort of unit? Like, you've got to have something 
at the end of these pipes to drive this thing. What's what are we looking at? What sort of powered unit do we need to to drive this? And uh, what are we looking at for the for the blast gates? The top rated uh, dust collector in Australia at the moment is the Clearview, and you're talking about four or five grand. Now we don't sell those; they're bought from Clearview in Australia. One of our guys, by the way, was previously the distributor of Clearview in Australia, so we have that as a background. But um, so you're talking four or five grand there. The gates themselves are of the order of three hundred and fifty dollars for the controller and the gate. So you can start off with a very simple dust collector and $350 will give you auto control on it. That's pretty bloody reasonable, isn't it, really? For what it does and what it saves the shed. And I mean, these guys are hardly sweeping every day with what they have to do. Mate, I, I have to see this thing in action. So um, let's um, set something up and see, so let's see how these things work, eh? Yep, sounds like a good plan. So Michael, you're the president of the Helensburg Shed, is that right? I have that pleasure, yeah. Is that a pleasure? It is. It's a great pleasure. <laughs> Good on you, mate. Mate, this is a pretty unique and elaborate system. Um, how did it come to be? Why, what made you look at uh, getting this installed in the shed? Well, we moved into this building a, a year and a bit ago. Uh, it's a rented, rented shed, and we knew that we had to improve our dust extraction from what we had. We'd bought a major woodworking equipment um, extractor unit, and we were investigating the plumbing to connect it all up and a local bloke, uh, Chris, who's part of the Auto Blast Gates team, popped up to see what we're up to and put us on to Dr Bob over in WA to investigate dust extraction. And uh, we understood from his research the importance of volume rather than vacuum. So we wanted to put, install a system that drew the largest volume of air out of the shed as we could and particularly the largest volume of air from each machine as we could so that we could eliminate dust. Um, and it were, really works. Before, before we got the system going, um, we were working in the shed anyway using small units at each workstation and the asthma blokes would often have to leave the building because of the atmospheric dust, um, even though they were wearing masks and stuff. Now they don't have to leave the building, they can stay in. Yeah, mate, it's definitely a concern, especially with a lot of the timbers we use. I mean, I used to have a workshop, used to use a lot of the craft wood and things like that. That stuff, you know, you don't want to suck that stuff in. That's that's terrible. No, 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 that's nasty, nasty. We try and avoid all of those composite woods simply because the dust is so dangerous and it's so fine and it makes it hard to get rid of the dust as well. Yeah, it's definitely become a real a real issue. All right, mate. So you've got uh, you've got a pan full of dust here. Yeah. We're at we're at the bench, and you're going to show me how these things work. So what we've basically got here, he's got a you've got a drill plugged into the power point above the bench. So, we've we've so. got the unit, the vacuum sort of head unit, just sitting resting on the bench here, and we're going to see how this thing goes. Yeah. Right now, if you look up up above, you can see the gate. So when I fire the drill up, you'll see the gate start to activate, and I'll, I'll talk you through it. And you see that you can see the gate opening. If you look up there, the gate's fully open. Now you can hear the suction down below, and, and there goes the dust. Yeah, that is crazy. I tell you what, that's got some suction on it. Crazy. It sucks for about 30 seconds after you've finished your job, yep. um, so that that gets it right down the line because it's quite a distance to the actual unit. There's 19 outlets. Um, we spent about, I think we spent 15 grand in cash and it was probably, I think it was about three weeks work 
for the blokes. Three. Equivalent to, to 21 days work. And that's and you guys did it, installed the whole thing yourself pretty much? Yeah, yeah, all, all, all our own work. We we uh, we did ran all the cabling as well and we because we had to put in extra power points, we ran that and an electrician, friendly electrician came and terminated it all onto the power points to certify it. And I know there are a lot of sheds that are already onto this, but uh, look, it's, it's best, you know, to share the wealth, share the knowledge. Thanks, mate. Thanks, JPY. Catch ya. Shed Story. Let's find out more about our shed in the spotlight. Well, it's time to shine the spotlight on another Aussie men's shed. We're dialing up Strathmore Shed in Victoria. And let's say good day to Rodney, who's the president. Oh, no, you're not the president, are you, Rodney? You, you help put the whole thing together. I'm just a facilitator. <laughs> a facilitator. I love that word. <laughs> Now, given that shedders all over Australia and the world might be listening right now, Rod, can you explain where Strathmore is on the map and what the place um, is? Okay, so probably the easiest way to, to locate it is to people that know Melbourne and the Essendon Airport, the old Essendon Airport. Um, we're probably a couple of good football kicks away from the Essendon Airport. Ah, oh, terrific. I'll be driving by your way uh Next Sunday. <laughs> I, I would offer you to call in for a cup of coffee, but we don't run a program on the Sunday, unfortunately. No, that's okay. <laughs> now, this is a relatively new men's shed. How did yes. it come about? It goes back originally there was a couple of individuals from various or two different rotary clubs in Melbourne um, who both had a similar idea about the need for a shed in the area. Um, there was some approaches made to the Mooney Valley City Council and to take out probably two or three years of history into a, a couple of sentences, basically um, driven by the Mooney Valley City Council and a combination of three Rotary Clubs, which was the Essendon, North Essendon and the Strathmore Rotary Clubs, uh, along with the Mooney Valley City Council and the then Lord Mayor, Jan Chantry. Um, they all got together, thought it was a good idea. Council went ahead and did a an analysis of the thing, put some money together for a, a viability study and then put the money together to um, source the land and, and, and build the shed and, and uh, fit it out. Wonderful. So what goes on there? What sort of activities do you have there? Well, we all, all, primarily the shed is just woodworking. Uh, we don't do any metal work or anything else, but uh, we do a lot of uh, community programs, uh, kindergartens, um, yeah, lockers for kindergartens. We've done chicken coops. We've done um, yeah, toys. We do a lot of repairs for toys at times. Uh, there's also some other programs. We'll undertake little projects for a couple of the primary schools we've done. And then, yeah, the guys do a few of their own little projects or we'll take on a bit of work. You know, people will come in and say, can we do this or build that for them? So, yeah, it's, it's a spread of things. We try not to take on um, too much stuff that is time constrained because, you know, they're all volunteers. It's when the guys show up is when they've got some time available. Any project that's been really memorable so far? Oh, um, gee. Well, one you yeah. wish we hadn't started. <laughs> oh, the one we wish we hadn't started. Oh, well. Yeah. Um, we, we took on a project about four years ago, and now just after the shed got started, three and a half years ago now, for Mooney Ponds Traders Association. It's, it's like a parklet. Um, it's a, an area where they bring it out at Christmas time and Melbourne Cup time, and people can sit around or post letters to Santa and that type of thing. Um, but it's now actually out in Mooney Ponds in, in Puckle Street being used by one of the cafes to 
provide seating area after the COVID situation. But it was sort of uh, one of those projects that started off, sounded quite simple when they talked about it, got quite complex when uh, the chap that was involved with it drew it up. Um, then they couldn't make up their mind whether they wanted one of them or two of them or half as big or twice as big. Um, but eventually we got it there and we got it delivered within a couple of days of when they wanted it. So, But it was quite a large and very trying project because it has to sit on the roadway in the gutter level with the footpath. And, of course, if you understand roadways and footpaths and gutters, they're not always level. So Exactly. And you've always got yeah. councils and uh, road people to deal with and everything else. Yeah, but it was, it was, look, all, all the things we've taken on over the years, John, have been great learning experience. Now, I take it you have a healthy membership there? Yeah, we started off, uh, the original membership was 12 to 15 when we opened in June 2015. Uh, guys used to show up every second Saturday to help assemble workbenches and put the tools together and the, the equipment together. Um, and we've grown that from a membership originally of about 15 to 20 to we're just under we're 59 at the moment, and we're now running four programs a week, so Tuesdays, Wednesdays, Thursdays, and Saturday mornings. Now, personally, Rod, why do you like being involved? Well, um, they talk about when you come out of a, a, a business career and you retire to do something else, you, you probably should try and use the other half of your brain, um, and, you know, I'm sort of... No one at the shed is the bean counter. I used to be an accountant. So now I make a really good job of messing up ideas for think guys to do in the shed. So um, it uses the other half of the brain. Well, that's great, Rod. Thanks very much for your for your wonderful input. And I, I must apologise because I was late and we had technical issues, as I was saying before. We couldn't – I don't think we'd be capable of flying to the moon with, uh, with our, our amount of expertise. <laughs> Thanks very yeah, much again, Rod. That's all right, mate. You're listening to The Shed Wireless with my good friend, John Paul Young. It's a podcast for shedders across Australia and around the world. Get ready to shed. As I said earlier, I was pretty chuffed when John Laws accepted my invitation to be our special guest for this episode of The Shed Wireless. He's always a man in demand, and he's been off air lately after a bit of bad health and a couple of hospital visits. You can't deny that Lawsy has been an extremely influential figure of our generation. He's been a fearless and at times controversial presence on the radio. Sometimes his honesty gets him into trouble. That was the original wireless, of course, what we now call the radio. So he's been there for well over half a century. At the age of 85, he's back at work behind the golden microphone. Thank you very much for being a part of the show. Well, that's a pleasure so far. <laughs> we'll see how far we get. <laughs> well, as Julie Andrews once said, let's start at the very beginning. Yes. Now, you were, you were born in New Guinea. I was born in New Guinea, yes. How long before you uh, came to Australia? How old were you? I came to Australia when the war came to New Guinea in uh, 1940. Do you remember any of that? You oh, yes, that? I do. Yeah. It's strange, isn't it, when you're young like that, because I was very young. Uh-huh. Uh, I remember I remember a lot of it. I remember getting on the Yunka aeroplane that flew us out of Wow, the little town that I was living in, and flew us to Port Moresby, and I remember going on the little launch out to a terrible ship called the Katoomba. I remember sleeping on the deck as we came down uh, to Australia. And it was all around Christmas time. But it was, yeah, well, it's not the kind of thing you forget. I, I think you're the only person that I've been able to talk to about those war years. Yeah. Um, you know, I, 
my father, like most people who served in the war, they really didn't speak much yeah. about about their experience. Your career as a as a talkback king. Now, did you start off normally as as a normal DJ in radio? Oh yes. So how how did the transformation happen between? Well, being... the the talk thing started. We were suddenly allowed to put telephones uh, to air, mm-hmm. and uh, it seemed like a good idea. And uh, I started doing it on TUE. Now, was it your idea, or was it the program well, managers? It, it, no, or? no, no. It was a. Uh, it was happening in America. It was an American idea. Aha. Uh-huh. And uh, we knocked off the American idea, which we have a habit of doing. <laughs> yes. You've had quite a long, long career, and you've touched on many, many facets of, uh, of, of all walks of life. Uh, did you ever consider getting involved in politics? I've been asked that so many times. That would just ruin what's been a reasonably happy life. Who <laughs> want to be in politics? You have to tell lies to be in politics, and I don't like telling lies. And when I say you've got to tell lies, I upset a politician recently by saying that. But if you're going to go with the party line, you mightn't always approve of the party line, but you've got to pretend you do. So you're really telling a bit of a fib. And I don't like that. It's too difficult. Now, your joy of life, still there? Oh, yes. Yeah, no, no. More now than probably ever. Because I'm, I'm a very lucky man. I'm able to pretty much do as I like. And consequently, I'm able to make other people happy. And that makes me happy. One thing about you, John, I, I find that you're, you're very honest when it comes to yes, the way you think. Sometimes too much, but anyway, <laughs> I get into trouble sometimes. Yeah, but I suppose that's the, that's the price you pay for... For being honesty. successful and yeah, honesty. I'm, it suits me fine. Being a, a kid from the western suburbs like I am, um, and I remember listening to you back in the 70s and uh, talking about, was it Jimbo? Jumbo Jim. Jumbo Jim. Jumbo Jim. And uh, and that was when I first realised that you were a car nut, just like every kid in the western suburbs was. You know, Do you still have that uh, collection of vehicles? Yeah, not as many. Because uh-huh. I haven't got room. When I had the farm, I had plenty of room. Right. But now I'm a townie and I haven't got that much room. But I've still got a few. So you got rid of the farm? Yeah, well, we sold the farm. Yeah, because we stopped going. It became a drag at the weekends. Friday to drive up north became worse and worse and worse. And it wound up being something like a three-hour drive. You've just been in hospital. You're looking fine. Yeah, I so am. So everything's, everything's okay? Yeah, everything's good. Well, that's great. They only put me in hospital to find out... They wanted to find out something. there was something wrong, and they couldn't. Oh. So they sent me home, and then they put me back in again. <laughs> I really don't know what happens in my life. I just go where I'm told and do what I'm told. <laughs> that's well, that's a they, big that's change. Why they, that's why they call me old easy to get along with, John. Oh, really? That's, that's wonderful. I can see all the smiles around the place. Yeah. Total, in total agreeance. Yes. <laughs> do, you, do you see yourself continuing on and on and on? You, sure. I mean, I, I see that as myself. I'll probably die behind the microphone. Yeah, well, so long as the people want me, I'll, I'll keep turning up.
Well, it's fabulous. It really is. And it's great to talk to you, John. And, and I'm, I'm very, very, um, very, very pleased that you allowed me to come in and uh, allow you to be a part of the Shed Wireless. No, no, no. You're very welcome any time you want to come in. Thank you very much, John. It's a pleasure. You're listening to the Shed Wireless Podcast with the one and only JPY. Welcome back to the Shed Wireless and it's time to talk fishing again and we've got Butch here to have another chat and this time we're going to talk about what you actually need to go fishing and I think you'll find out that you really don't need that much at all, isn't that right? That's correct. Good to see you again, John. Yeah, good to be I'm here. Glad, yeah, I'm glad to be involved with this uh, the whole man shed thing. I think it's a great initiative. It is. Yeah, I've been trying to talk to my, some of my mates into it. Uh-huh. And they say, oh, but I'm no good. I've got, I, haven't, I can't saw or I can't use a hammer. I'd be no good there. Oh, that's what the shed's for. Okay. Yeah, you, you know, if, if, you, if you're willing to learn, mm-hmm. then there's plenty of people in the shed that, that are willing to, to give you a hand. Even if you've never done any manual labour in your life, you can just come along, sit there and have a cup of tea and watch, as, uh, watch what other people do. That's fantastic. That, that's, that's what I'm trying to get through to my mates. Yep. I've got about... Ten mates that I've just been with lately, they're all our age, uh-huh. I don't mention ages, and every one of them sort of poo-pooed the idea because they thought, oh, I need to be, I'd need to have a bit of carpentry skills or something, but no, obviously not, not. That's fantastic. Yep, yep. So, fishing. Yep. Now, you, you're a, you know, a, a great testament to the fact that you really don't need a boat or any huge expensive gear to go fishing. No, well, these days, look, what I can recommend is you go to some big place like Anaconda or BCF, and mm-hmm. they've got these rod, reels and line, com- what they call a combo. Mm-hmm. You can get one of those for less than 100 bucks in most of those places. Yep. And the standard of the reels and the rods these days are such that you very rarely get a dud one. So that's your start. You just uh-huh. go into, into, into Anaconda or somewhere like that, mm-hmm. talk to the fishing staff, say what you want to fish for, how you want to fish, where you want to fish, and they'll give you a guide. And it's usually very simple. You need a seven-foot rod with a, with a 2,000 reel, 10-pound line, and off you go. You can now, fish off the shore or anything. Yeah, talk about fishing off the shore. That's something you've done an awful lot of in, in, the, in the, the last probably 10 or 15 years. So you just, you just basically go for a walk and throw the line in. My technique is to get the street directory out. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> and because I'm based mainly in Sydney, I just look at the street directory and find where some of the roads lead to the water, uh-huh. unrestricted access, where it's not private property. Yep. And you'll be amazed at how many bays and inlets you can find that you just drive up to, get out of your car, walk down and start fishing. It's an amazing place, Sydney Harbour. Fantastic. Yeah. Uh, I mean, what sort of species are you catching uh, just off the shore? Right. So for me, I target... Because I use mainly lures these days, but we'll get into techniques later. But um, I use lures. I'm always targeting flathead, one of the easiest fish to catch, mm-hmm. on a, on a, one of the best eating. Yeah. And prolific. So the other ones are, are things like whiting and broom, which are a little bit more technical. And you're always in with the chance of getting a kingfish or a salmon around the edges of the harbour. Even in Lake Macquarie here, it doesn't matter where you start, some of the wharves, anywhere there's a wharf, you're in with the chance. 
Fantastic. And, I mean, you could even use a handline if, you you know, you, you don't even really need a, no, a rod. No. Well, we used to use handlines. Remember, we used to use handlines all the time. That's all yes, we ever used. absolutely. And um, you can still use them. It's just that I think that these days with the, the availability of the rods and reels and the cheapness of them, it's mm-hmm. just a bit more convenient, a lot easier to use. Remember the old handlines we used to have on, on a cork? Yeah. And they'd all roll everywhere. And you'd sure. put a couple of lines out and you'd get a fish would go and boom, the cork would go over the wharf. Yep. Over the edge of the wharf. Yeah. I mean, you know, those sort of days are over. Yep. But if you're taking kids and, and, and grandkids fishing off the shore off a wharf, a handline's no problem. And uh, you mentioned before lures, you know, because in the old days you'd, you'd buy a packet of prawns and there's a lot of people out there who don't do the right thing and leave a lot of mess behind. Oh, but uh, if, if you're out there using a lure, it's it's a lot cleaner way to just go fishing and pack it up and put it back in the car without having to worry about yeah. the smell and the mess. Absolutely. So that's why one of the main reasons I, I, I fish with, it, with uh, lures is the smell and the mess, as you mm-hmm. were saying, and there's no waste. Yep. You know, used to, we, you know, we used to buy a packet of prawns, you only use half of them. Yes. What are you going to do with the other half? Well, they the, go the thing off is, and, you know. And they cost more than the prawns you eat. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> and they probably come from overseas as well. Yeah, which is not a good thing because you could uh, poison the waterway yeah. with uh, with unknown beasties from other, from other places. Now... I think we've just about covered that side of, yep. uh, you know, the fact that you don't need a lot of gear to go fishing. Mm-hmm. Now, when you come back, mm-hmm. and we'll have a talk about people taking their grandkids fishing. I'm sure everybody remembers what it was like when they caught their first fish. Uh, so this is a good opportunity to get your family involved or even somebody else's family, any any kids that you know in the neighbourhood well, that haven't caught a fish. There's all sorts of extended families these days, yeah. <laughs> as you know. So, um, well, I remember being taken fishing by Dad and that got me started. And then, um, you know, it's it's so easy now for kids to get trapped in that, on the you know, with the electronics mm-hmm. and they don't go out fishing. They don't do anything. They True. don't go outside. So, you know, it's just a no-brainer to take kids fishing. They yeah. have fun. Grand, grandparents have fun. It's a winner. No, no brainer. It is an absolute winner. All right. Well, uh, we'll we'll speak with Butch next time on the Shed Wireless, and next time we're going to be taking your kids fishing. Nailed it. Nailed it. Nailed it. <laughs> Nailed it with Rick Woodchip. How you all going today? My young bloke's just picked up the grandkids after the missus and I had them overnight. And I'm completely buggered. Crikey, I don't know how we used to do it back in the day with a brood of our own and running a farm. I think we used to run on pure adrenaline back then. I mean, I love the little tykes and all, but jeez. Giving them back is like unbuckling your trousers after a seven-course meal at an all-you-can-eat restaurant. Pure bloody relief. I tell you what, though. If you could bundle their energy into some sort of battery, you could solve the world's energy emissions crisis, I reckon. Non-bloody stop. And the off-switches must have been made in Kazakhstan. You know, I never really realised how good it would be to be a grandparent. I know everyone used to always say it's better because you can give them back and all that, which is true. But they seem to come along just when you need that extra bit of a boost in your life. When your kids have all grown up and left the roost and you think you'll never have that feeling of unconditional love again, along they come. And they look at you as if you're the be-all and end-all. Ah, but it's a mixture of pleasure and pain. 
the majority of the former for sure. There's a real sense of pride and satisfaction you get just from watching them do their thing and seeing yourself and your kids in them. Whether they're dazzling you with how clever they seem to be or running around with a bucket on their head bashing into things. A perfect mix of innocence and stupidity. You can't help but wonder what it'd be like to be that age again though and whether you'd want to or not. I mean, the world is your oyster, if not the whole bloody seafood platter. But it's a scarier, meaner place now too, in a lot of ways. Well, all you can do is try and instill a bit of wisdom and hope they turn out a little bit smarter than you were. And wish them all the best, I reckon. I'm sure they'll be fine, just like we were. Anyway, fellas, time to give myself a bottle and put myself down for a quick nap. Catch you next time, fellas. See ya! Got a question? Ask the doc, Professor Rob McLaughlin from AMSA Partners Healthy Mail. If you suffer from regular or ongoing pain, I suspect you'll get a lot out of this edition of Ask the Doc. We're focusing on male health, really relevant stuff. And we've been discussing opioid pain medication over a few episodes. This time, we'll get into which types of pain are helped by the opioid types of pain relief and which ones aren't. So over to you, Professor Rob and Stuart. Thanks, JPY, and hello, everyone. I'm Stuart Torrance, the Men's Health Project Officer from the Australian Men's Shed Association. We're also joined today by uh, Ask the Doctors, Professor Rob McLaughlin, uh, Medical Director of uh, Healthy Male. Welcome, Rob. G'day, Stuart. Uh, how are you going? Oh, fantastic, mate. Since last time, I've uh, I've been studying up on pain. I've been Googling it. Uh, and, uh, mate, there's a lot of information out there. There's some interesting videos and um, the world over, they seem to have a similar message where we have to change the way we think about pain. Would you would you agree with that, Rob? Yes, well, it's, it's a bit of a, a revelation to think about the fact that there are different types of pain. Uh, there are different drugs for different types of pain in different settings and with different benefits and side effects. So it's, it's not straightforward. There's a bit to cover. And I guess by way of introduction, this is a very big issue for the Australian community. Do you know that in Australia there are 150 hospitalisations and 14 emergency department admissions related to harm from the use of these legally prescribed opioid medications? So that's a lot of, lot of, a lot of hospitalisation and effort going in there. Every day, sadly, three people die as a result of opioid use. Uh, and so consistent with international trends, this medical use of opioids in Australia has steadily increased over time. So this problem is getting more evident, not less. Uh, now, you know, many may know the Australian government introduced some regulatory changes that have impacted the availability and use of opioids for both new and existing patients, but they are still accessible for appropriate circumstances. So We've got a fair bit to learn and cover today to make sure everybody feels their questions have been answered. So our project brief today, uh, Rob, is uh, uh, to talk about the types of pain uh, that actually benefit from uh, opioid pain medication and which of those that don't. Um, We're also going to have a look at uh, the side effects um, from opioid uh, medications. So let's sink our teeth into this topic and we've invited Joyce McSwain to join the conversation. Joyce is a clinical pharmacist, pain educator and paid program leading uh, the development of PainWise, a program in Queensland. Hi, Joyce. How are you? Hi there, everybody. Um, yeah, really well. Thanks for including me in this conversation. Very important one. Joyce, can you start with a brief refresher of what sort of medications we're talking about? So in the area of pain management, 
Um, we've we've got a whole range of of medications. I think that um, people, you know, in the past have been using. So traditionally, we've got simple simple analgesias which you can buy over the counter. You know, you've got your paracetamol, you've got ibuprofen, and generally, therefore, mild um, pain. And really, these are quite symptomatic. So they look after just that comfort level, and then that's all they would generally do and usually quite short acting then you can step it up and there's stronger pain relievers like your opioids um and and they don't uh, you know come without a hassle really and in traditionally we used to think that they were the fix you know we used to think that they were helpful um but unfortunately over time we've learned that they've caused more harm than good in terms of pain and particularly in chronic pain. The art is to use them safely. Um, the art is to make sure that they're used for the right reasons um, and that they're only one part of many other things you can do for pain. Joyce, can we have a look at what specific types of pain are helped by opioids? Yeah, so more and more we're learning that there's less and less. To say if you were to break you know, have a fracture, you turn up at the hospital, certainly an acute pain episode would probably more um, benefit from a short-term use of an opioid. But that we expect to heal. We expect to, you know, move on from that phase of the injury and opioids thereafter will have a very, very little role. Sometimes you get so dulled out with the longer-term use of opioids, that your rehabilitation can actually slow down um, and the motivation, you know, particularly hard dose of opioids can be very dampening for your motivation. So then you're not feeling motivated to even reha rehabilitate, you know, engage with rehabilitation exercises, for example. That's just an example. So there is a role in acute pain, very short-term, and that's really about all the role, I would say. That said, there are some circumstances where some people, and it's very case by case, where people will probably go, look, it's helping me though. I'm chronic pain and it's helping me. And I think we need to weigh up those individual cases and see what else they've tried because sometimes incorporating other things might reveal to them that their perception of what was actually working actually may not be working and then they can be supported to reduce the opioids over time. Um, I've done that many times with patients, um, patients who think that, hang on, I've been doing my opioids, taking them for so long for my osteoarthritis, and it really, I swear to God, it's helping me. But then when we start to introduce other methods of managing pain, whether drug or non-drug, even other drugs, you know, they then go, oh my goodness, they're doing so much better for me. I, I didn't know. We help them to really reduce and chip down the opioids. And that's a really supported way, you know. I think we shouldn't just rip out the jugular <laughs> and go, it's not good for everybody. We found out yesterday and today you can't take any. I mean, that's that's scary um, and that's, that's not needed. Joyce, uh, if somebody has been on the medication chronically, for example, for back pain, a fairly common indication for it, and it's begun to be withdrawn, I understand it in conjunction with new ideas which you've been adding to try and get around the pain. What's the effect of just withdrawal on its own? I mean, to what degree do people become habituated and they feel unwell because they've stopped the drug? They can be like biochemically dependent upon it. 
Absolutely correct. And the slower you do the withdrawal, the less the unpleasantness about it. So take it slow and chip it down gradually depending on the the dose. And it also depends on the character of the person, how, you know, how worried they are, how anxious they are. If they've got other things like anxiety, depression, then they need to be well um, educated about what's happening, why it's good for their body to do that. But in effect, usually a withdrawal process, maybe about one to two weeks, or you kind of don't want to rush it because it all just, you know, it's a, it can be a traumatic process if it's too sudden. You're talking about withdrawal. Um, I suppose this leads to a great opportunity to start actually talking about what are the side effects of opioid medications? Oh, the side effects um, initially... Um, obviously are things like drowsiness, but your body tends to get accommodated to that. Um, So people who are on opioids are now still driving a car, you know, because initially they might've been a little bit dopey, but then after a while they're like, oh, it doesn't make me drowsy anymore. Um, Also constipation, that doesn't tend to improve. The constipation doesn't tend to improve even with long-term use. So really people can get really uncomfortable and sore in their tummies if they're not managing the constipation that goes with their opioid treatment. And that's a really big one that people don't, you know, they feel shy to talk about it. And then they get really uncomfortable in their tummies as well. And then their food intake might change and they get a bit more tired. So that's a common um, initial type of side effect longer term and this is the part that we really get concerned about longer term probably the one i see that's a little bit sneaky that people tend to forget to manage is hormonal changes so for a male um this is a men's um forum your testosterone so your manhood hormone plummets ridiculously and usually it's not libido that people come and tell me about Um, because they're not even there thinking about it. It's their fatigue, it's their motivation, and it's just their mood. So you can see the person like being empty in themselves, like they're just not the same personality as they used to be. That particular one, I find men, you need to remind your doctors to check your testosterone levels because, um, that's a yeah. That's that's not great for a guy to not have testosterone. Right. Uh, it's interesting. These, these drugs uh, affect the brain hormonal drive to the testicle. They basically act centrally to turn off the the messages to the testes to make testosterone. So there's a clear pathway as to why this occurs, uh, and it, it is absolutely reversible if you're able to to stop it, which is where we got this conversation. Joyce, I'm interested uh, the. We heard about all hospitalizations and what's the context for the admissions and the really dangerous harm? It's, why does that happen? Are people making the wrong dose? Is it intentional? Is it accidental? Are they combining other medications? What's causing this this real health? Yeah, I think the problem is drug combination, definitely, because one of the most um, fatal, you know, risks, I suppose, in the, is the combination of high-dose opioids with benzodiazepines as well, which are typically, you know, people prescribe them for sleeping. When you have pain, sometimes you can't sleep. And sometimes a doctor might prescribe you benzodiazepines. And the combination of those can really, you know, cause death. The other one is 
alcohol. Um, that's quite commonly, um, it's under talked about and it's quite commonly used where patients will go, you know, five o'clock starts, their pain starts to get to them and they down one, two, three, four stubbies into the night. Many patients have said to me, and, and that's a self-medicating thing, patients have said to me, um, that's my copa, you know, I just want out. And then by nighttime, they'll take their usual prescribed dose of opioids and all that combination together can, yeah, can really manifest. So it's very, very important that the, that the man be aware if he's on opioids for whatever reason to always check about other medication interactions and to be careful with alcohol and, and I guess also things like, you know, not dry equipment or things that require coordination if, you're, if your senses are dull. I mean, there are all sorts of ways that you have to be careful if you're on these medications, which is a good reason to not be on them long term, I guess, isn't it? That's where the conversation started. Joyce, Rob, I think we've talked about the pain uh, and uh, the pains that um, we basically uh, use opioids for. We've uh, also talked very heavily about the, the side effects, and I, I think it comes back to we really do need to change the way we think about pain. Uh, and um, check out uh, some of the things that may be an alternative. We'll talk about that uh, in our next podcast. And um, thank you both for coming along and join, joining me today uh, to talk about this very important topic. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Thank you. For a great range of resources and tools to help you live well, head to the Spanner in the Works website. You can just search it up or go to mailhealth.org.au. Everything you hear on The Shed Wireless is created to inform and is not intended to be a substitute for personal advice from your doctor. Well, now it's time to shut the shed door on another episode of The Shed Wireless. Don't forget, you can get in touch with me by emailing theshedwireless at menshed.org. I'd love to hear your ideas for shed topics, special guests, Ask the Doc, and any bits and pieces you'd like to contribute to the podcast. The Shed Wireless at menshed.org. Thank you very much for listening. We got through a lot of things today, and I'm very happy about it. And just a little note to those shedders overseas, you know, who are still under the thumb of uh, COVID-19. You know, we all feel your pain, and uh, we just hope that things will brighten up for you all soon, and you'll be able to get back into your shed, because I'm sure a lot of the sheds have been closed down because of the problems that we've had. That's it for this episode. I look forward to catching up with you next time. Bye-bye.